Well, I wanted you to know that the word is out. You know, whenever you do something really good, then everybody kind of wants to jump on the bandwagon. Well, everybody wants to do what Redeemer is doing now. Look what I received in the mail this week. In case you can't read it from where you're sitting, it's an invitation to a conference entitled Preaching Deuteronomy. (laughs) Behind the law of God is the grace of God to his people. The book of Deuteronomy points us toward a greater destination and toward a greater promised land. They're about three and a half years late. I'm quite confident that the invitation for me to be keynote speaker is is lost in the mail. It's coming. I so hoped you wouldn't laugh at the possibility of me being the keynote speaker. Anyway, Deuteronomy is such a great book. And so let's get back to what everybody now apparently wants to do. Let's get back to Deuteronomy chapter 32. This is a song. It is a song of salvation. It is the story of redemption. So let's hear this morning bad news that makes the good and good news so good. Or think of it this way, the black backdrop against which the light and the love of God for us can shine so that you and I this morning will be in absolute awe of God's salvation for us. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32. And when you found your place there, I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to hear read together the word of the living God. This morning we'll be considering the whole chapter, but I'm going to read just the first six verses. This is the word of the Lord. Listen, O heavens, and I will speak. Hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching fall like rain and my words descend like dew, like showers on new grass like abundant rain on tender plants. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His words are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. They have acted corruptly toward him. To their shame, they are no longer his children, but a warped and crooked generation. Is this the way you repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word as always. And now, again, as we've prayed, we ask that you would bless the reading and the hearing of your word as you promised to do. Through the power of your spirit and the truth of your word, we pray that you would be, bring change among us this morning. Father, you know the transformation that needs to take place because you know each of us individually and you know what we are and what we need to become. And so, Father, we just submit ourselves to the uh, authority of your word and we yield ourselves to the work of your spirit. Now, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much. May be seated. Just as a reminder here, our third week in uh, this song that Moses writes, that, that God says that this song that Moses has composed is a song that will not be forgotten by their descendants. 
This song is going to be sung and sung over and over again throughout the generations. Last week, we spent the entirety of our time together talking about the name of the Lord, Yahweh, the supreme name for God. I am the great I am. And we talked about the fullness that Jesus brought to that name and the joy and the comfort in those great I am statements. I am the resurrection and the life. I, I, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. All of those things giving fullness to what it means when we say the name of the Lord. And so we realize when we think of what's contained in the name of the Lord, that we must proclaim the name of the Lord. As Moses says here, we must praise the name of the Lord out loud and very often and at great length. The Lord has given us an entire day in which we can proclaim and praise his name. That's his gift to us, the Sabbath day. And so we need to use that day for the gift, for the purpose to which it has been given, for which it's been given to us. To declare the name of the Lord, Lord you are, Lord you are, Lord you are, all day long. This morning, we contemplate the name of the Lord again. But this time as the standard against what everything else is judged. Everything else in our lives refers back to the name of the Lord. Look with me, if you will, at the very last word of verse 4. The very last word of verse 4 is he. Upright and just is he. Now look at the very first word of verse 5. It's they. So we cannot miss the comparison. He and they. He is, they are. Now who are you picturing in your mind right now when you hear they? Probably you're thinking about that the Israelites, those who are gathered on the plains of Moab before Moses as he premieres this song, they hear it for the very first time. But Moses doesn't define they. And by not defining they, Moses violates one of our laws of grammar. Right? You are never, you learn this, you are never supposed to use a pronoun without an antecedent, right? The pronoun has to refer to something. But Moses, he violates that rule. He uses a pronoun with no antecedent. And that's because grammar must serve the gospel. Grammar must serve the gospel. We've seen it over and over again. And it does so in this way, a very important way. Using the pronoun without the antecedent leaves room for the they to include people far beyond those standing in front of Moses in this particular moment. The they means that no one can dismiss themselves from the they. The details are what allow us to dismiss ourselves. My youngest daughter, Anna Ruth, had jury duty this past week. And so I, never gone, I went with her uh, for her first day. And the jury room was filled to capacity. And every potential juror had to stand up and state their name and their occupation and the occupation of their spouse should they be married. One person in the room was an astrophysicist. No kidding. 
Another person in the room was, uh, was a janitor, astrophysicist, janitor, and everything in between. And there they all were gathered in that room, potential jurors. But then they began to add some details. Said, well, if you have served on a jury in the last year or two, you're dismissed. So these people got up, they left the room. Well, if you're an attorney or you're married to an attorney involved in this case, you are dismissed. And those people got up and left the room. And there were more circumstances and conditions offered. And as people met those conditions and circumstances, they got up and they left the room. It's the details that allowed people to dismiss themselves from this mass of potential jurors. But since Moses doesn't define they, Nobody has permission to leave the room. We all have to stay and listen to what he says. We have to stay because the they might be us, whether we're an astrophysicist or a janitor. The entirety of this psalm before us lacks the specificity that the rest of the book of Deuteronomy has. We've seen repeated over and over. There are no specific details. There's no mention of slavery, no mention of Egypt, no mention of Mount Sinai or the promised land. There are no mention of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The future to which it refers is not specific like it was back in chapter 28. You can recognize things here, but only vaguely. So we have a pronoun without an antecedent so that people far beyond the ones gathered on the plains of Moab are required to make the comparison. He versus they. And making that comparison is a vital part of this song of salvation and the story of redemption. Because it's this comparison that yields the blackness against which the light And the life of the Lord can shine. So, how do they compare to him? Verse 5. They have acted corruptly. They are warped and crooked generation. Corrupt, warped, crooked. That's who they are in comparison to God. So much for self-esteem. You know, these are the kind of adjectives that get God dismissed in 2017. Because these words suggest that there is a standard. After all, we can only recognize corrupt when it's compared to what is pure. We can only recognize what is warped or crooked when it's placed beside what is straight or plumb. God is a standard, He is perfect. He is just. He is pure. Humans made in his image are only living rightly when we reflect that image. So corruptly in verse 5 means ruined or spoiled. And when something is spoiled, its value or its quality is diminished or destroyed. Spoiled milk. You can smell it, right? Spoiled meat, spoiled children, (laughs) spoiled image of God. Sin destroys the quality of those made in God's image. And that's what God means here when he says that they are not my children. They have strayed so far from the standard 
of God, so far from the image of God within them that they are no longer recognizable as the children of God. Our culture wants to eliminate the comparison by removing the standard, right? And then we can all feel good about ourselves. No matter what we do, if there's no standard of judgment, no right, no wrong, we can all feel good about what we do. And then we can all have a healthy self-image. But remember, the Lord is our reference point for all things, even psychology. And God thinks, as the one who wired us, that it's best to tell us the truth about ourselves. That's the only hope for us. And so the Pygmalion effect, it's just, it's a non-starter with God. Remember Pygmalion from mythological fame? He's a sculptor and he sculpted the, the statue of the girl out of ivory and he fell in love with the statue and he wanted to marry a girl, the living likeness of this beautiful statue that he had sculpted. Well, Epaphrodite granted him his wish and he, and he goes to the statue one day and he discovers that the statue's lips are warm. I guess he was kissing the statue. I don't know, <laughs> kind of weird, but it is mythology. So she becomes a living being and they get married and live happily ever after. And so the Pygmalion effect is, is this. You know what it is. If, it's, if a leader speaks positive, encouraging words, then people will internalize those positive and, uh, uh, messages and their performance will in, improve. Pygmalion wished for the statue to become real and it became real. And so it's a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. The words we speak don't necessarily have to be true. They just have to be positive. Because above all else, self-esteem must be preserved. But for God... Telling us the truth about ourselves is more important than preserving our self-esteem with a lie. Go back to chapter 31, one, one chapter back. Look in verse 19. This is where God commissions the writing of this song. Verse 19, God says to Moses, Now write down for yourselves this song and teach it to the Israelites and have them sing it so that it may be a witness for me against them. Now look at the end of verse 21. I know what they are disposed to do even before I bring them into the land I promised them on oath. Here's the thing. God knows the truth about us. And God knows the intent of the human heart. So the question is, when will we concede that God knows us better than we know ourselves. Remember Jesus, the upper room, the last supper, the disciples are gathered around and they're eating the meal together. And Jesus says to all of them, this night, this very night, you will all fall away on account of me. Peter pipes up, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Jesus says, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Did the disciples mean what they said? Absolutely. Of course they did. 
Did they love Jesus that much? Of course they did or thought they did. Did they intend to stick by Jesus' side no matter what? Of course they did. But what did they not know? They did not know their own hearts, right? Because they all fell away that very night. This is from an article I read in Psychology Today entitled, You Are Probably Wrong About Yourself. (laughs) If you want to be more successful at anything than you are right now, you need to know yourself and your skills. This should be no problem, after all. Who knows you better than you do? And yet your own ratings of your personality traits, for instance, how open-minded, conscientious, or impulsive you are, correlate with the impressions of other people who know you well at around 0.40. In other words, how you see yourself and how other people see you are only very modestly correlated. Who's right? Who knows you best? Well, the research suggests that they do. Other people's assessment of your personality predicts your behavior on average better than your assessment does. The truth is, we don't know ourselves nearly as well as we think we do. When it comes to performance, our surprising self-ignorance makes understanding where we went right and where we went wrong difficult, to say the least. If we're ever going to improve performance, we need to place blame where it belongs. We need solid evidence about where we went wrong Unfortunately, that's the kind of evidence that usually doesn't make it into our consciousness on its own, making self-diagnosis practically impossible. We need help getting the right answers. And here's the good news. The good news is that this is basically what research psychologists do for a living. We figure out what questions we can ask you to get at what's really going on underneath the surface. (laughs) I just love it. I love it when science, psychology in this case, confirms what God has known from all eternity past. We don't know ourselves, right? We need help in knowing ourselves, where we went right, where we went wrong. It does take questions to find out what's going on under the surface. And God knows the questions to ask. He's been asking questions for a very long time. Not because God lacks information, but because we lack information about ourselves. Adam, after Adam sinned, not my son, Adam goes, woo! Adam, after he sinned, where are you? Oh Lord, I'm behind the second bush to the left. No, no. Not what God meant. Now that sin has come to the world, where are you now, Adam? Eve, what have you done? Oh, I ate a piece of fruit. Or my husband and I just together brought about the downfall of humanity. (laughs) See, penetrating questions help expose where we are and what we're thinking and what our motivation is. And so here in this song, God asks questions. Verse 5. Is this the way you repay the Lord? Yahweh, I am. By acting corruptly toward him and being warped and crooked, is that how you do it? 
The yes or the no answer forces commitment. Yes, this is what Yahweh deserves. Or no, this is not what he deserves. Commit one way or the other. It will reveal what you believe about yourself and what you believe about God. Second question, is he not your father, your creator who made you and formed you? Yes or no? Answer the question, commit. It will reveal what you believe about yourself and God. The conclusion here is that all of us are the, a, the, the, the they. The image of God is spoiled in all of us. Scripture tells us for all, inclusive, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In spite of who he is, in spite of his glory and his holiness, we have sinned against him. And so we have to remember who he is to understand the senselessness of our sinning against him. Look in verse seven. God says, remember the days of old. Verse eight, when the Lord most high gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for his people. And so God is taking his people back to primeval time, back beyond that before time. And we enter into this council room of God before time began. And in that place, God divided up the nations, determining where each of them would live and what each of them would be. And among all the nations of the earth, God chose the people of Israel to be his special people and to receive his special love and his special care. So answer the question, is this the way you repay the Lord? What about us? Ephesians chapter one, verse four. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Can you even fathom that? To be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons and daughters through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. God never changed before the foundation of time. Sing the song of salvation. Tell the story of redemption. It isn't just for the years of this life that God is loving and has loved you, right? God has been loving you a long time from eternity past. How do you relate to a God like that? How do you repay? How do you act toward a God who loves you like that? Answer the question. And not only did God choose them, he provided for them. Look in verse 10. In a desert land, he found him. In a barren and howling waste. The language takes us back to Genesis chapter 1. Tohu vabohu. There's your impressive Hebrew term. Tohu vabohu. Which translates formless and void. That's what the earth was until God brought order out of chaos. That's what he's done for his people. He has brought order to the chaos of their lives. Jesus took that scroll of Isaiah and he stood up in the synagogue and he read, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to comfort all who mourn, provide for those who grieve, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, 
The oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of spirit instead of a spirit of despair. God has brought order to our chaos. He's brought hope to despair and healing for brokenness. So sing the song of salvation and tell the story of redemption. Continue reading verse 10. Of his care for his people, he shielded them. He cared for them. He guarded them as precious, the apple of his eye. Verse 11, he hovered over them like a protective mother eagle who spread its wings to catch the young and to carry them. And here again, the language takes us back to Genesis 1. The earth was without form and void and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Creating order out of chaos, sustaining the hovering of the Spirit. These are the good works of God on behalf of His people, on your behalf and my behalf. Have you a response to that? Amen. <laughs> Romans 8:16. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, the wings under us. The Spirit intercedes for His saints in accordance with God's will. What shall we say in response to this? Another question. If God is for us, who can be against us? Answer the question. Verse 12, He led them. Verse 13, He made them ride on the heights of the land. He fed them. He nourished them from unlikely places. Honey from a rock? What? Oil from a flinty crag? What? Who would have expected or believed such rich provision from such places? How do you repay the Lord? Answer the question. And what was the response of his people to the tender care and provision of the Lord? Look in verse 15. There we find the answer to verse 5. This is how they repaid the Lord. They grew fat and kicked, filled with food. He became heavy and sleek, and abandoned the God who made him and rejected the rock, his Savior. They gorged themselves on the good things of God. And worse than abandoning God for nothing at all, they gave credit to all that God had given them and done for them to other gods they had not known. Makes me wonder what we do with the really good things that come to our lives and come in our lives because of the goodness of God to us? Do we turn to him in gratitude? Or are we fat and sleek and arrogant and independent of God? But because of his great love, God will not leave his people to themselves lost in their ignorance and their arrogance. So God disciplines his people. If you look in verses 19 through 25, they describe what that discipline looks like. Let's read verse 22. For a fire has been kindled by my wrath, one that burns to the realms of death below. It will devour the earth and its harvests and set afire the foundations of the mountains. Verse 23, I will heap calamities upon them and send my arrows against them. 
the discipline of the Lord. But then we come to verse 26. And a little note of hope is sounded. I said I would scatter them and blot out their memory from mankind. But, but, ultimately, God is not going to destroy his people because God is always faithful to the promises that he has made. And God disciplines for a purpose. Look in verse 26, 36. The Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servant when he sees their strength is gone and no one is left, slave or free. He will say, now, where are their gods? The rock they took refuge in. The gods who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up to help you. Let them give you shelter. Now verse 39. See now that I myself am he. There is no God besides me. And so the point of the Lord's discipline is to deconstruct his people. To cause us to take ourselves apart. To take our lives apart. To take our thinking apart. To push us, discipline does. To the very end of our beliefs and our trusts. So that we see that if they are not in God, if our hope is not in God, if our trust is not in God, then we are without help and without hope because he is God and there is no other. And so what a blessing discipline is when it brings us back to God. It saves us from ourselves. We need someone to tell us the truth about ourselves. And thank God that he does that for us. It may be termed harsh. But if it saves us, how can we call it that? God says that this is truth that will refresh us. It's what it says, verses 1 and 2. It's truth that's like abundant rain. But have you ever been outside in an abundant rain? You know, sometimes it comes too hard and too fast, doesn't it? And it hurts. It pounds, it beats, sometimes it even destroys. And sometimes that's how God's truth comes to us. It needs to beat us down a little, to to destroy and to tear down the idols of our lives. 2 Corinthians 10 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. See, the Lord tears down. The truth of his word tears down so that we can be built up in Christ. And so this song that is so full of bad news, but true news, vital news, life-giving news ends with the gospel. So look at verse 43. Rejoice. See, God is going to act. He's going to act among his people. He's going to act among the nations of the world. And when God is finished with his work, there will be joy in the end result. There will be joy for his people. 
There will be joy for the nations who witness what God has done on behalf of the very people who rejected him in spite of his love and goodness toward them. Then look at the end of verse 43. And here's the reason for joy. The Lord, the Lord will make atonement for his land and his people. The Lord will make atonement. So here's the hope of restoration. Here's the hope of renewed relationship with God. God will atone. And the word atone simply means this, to cover. To cover. And I hate to trivialize a truth as deep and profound as atonement. But when someone says to you, hey man, will you cover for me? What are they asking you to do? You either have done something wrong or you are planning to do something wrong. Something that you should not do. Something that you don't want anyone else to know about. And so you say, hey, will you cover for me? So no one knows, no one sees what I'm about to do. See, God covers for us. Because we've done so much wrong. Our actions have brought so much suffering to our own lives and the lives of others. But ultimately, our sin has been against God. And yet he's the one who covers us. Think of the story of Noah. After the flood, he planted a vineyard and he drank a little bit too much of the fruit of that vineyard. And Moses, I suppose, got drunk. I know he got drunk and he went to his tent and he passed out. But Noah was uncovered. He was exposed. And one of his sons, Ham, came in and, and he saw his father's nakedness. And he went and reported to his brothers. I can't imagine. We said, hey, dad's passed out naked in the tent. Well, the other two brothers, Shem and Japheth, they took a garment and they laid it across their shoulders. And then they walked backwards into the tent and covered the nakedness of their father. And they kept their face turned away the entire time. They covered him. God looks full on at our sin. And he sees it. He knows the ugliness of it. And the destruction of it. But he covers it. And that's the point of Jesus' death on the cross. We are covered by the rightness of what he did. Jesus covers us so that when God looks at us, what God sees is the beauty of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the perfection of Jesus, his flawless obedience and complete fulfillment of the standards that God requires from all people, from those who will be in his presence. God looks at And sees that Jesus has fulfilled them completely. And given that perfect righteousness to us. We are covered. Our sin is atoned for. That's the work of the Lord. So we sing the song of salvation. No wonder people are going to sing it for generations. Right? It begins with the Lord. His name. It continues with humans. And who we are and what we are before God, rebellious and disobedient and spoiled and warped and crooked. But God in his goodness and grace 
give special love and care to those he chose before the foundation of the world, apart from his sovereign choice and revelation of himself. These people would never have come to know the Lord. God cares for his people. God provides for the people he loves. And when those people go astray, God disciplines them to break them and deconstruct them so he can put them back together in the right way. He judges them because he is a God and cannot therefore let sin go unpunished. And the good news for us is that God has taken the judgment on himself. God the Son, Jesus took the punishment for us to cover our sins. And so God looks at us through Christ and says, your sins are covered. They are atoned for. You are righteous in my sight. That's the story of redemption. That's the song of salvation found in Deuteronomy chapter 32. So we need to learn to sing this song. We have got to learn to sing this song and tell this story of redemption, to sing it often, quietly in our own hearts, out loud in the congregation of his people, because great is the salvation of our God. Let's pray. Lord heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for this song. Oh, Lord, in it, you have told the story of your salvation, of your redemption of your people. It starts with you, praising you, proclaiming you. It ends with you as well, Lord. And all the in-between you have, Lord, we do not deserve what you have done for us. Father, we are as guilty as the they on the plains of Moab not being aware of your goodness to us, taking for granted the things in our life as if they are the result of our own hands and our own labor and our own abilities instead of seeing that even the ability to obtain what we have comes from the life that you put in our bodies. Anyway, Father, we are corrupt as they were and warped. And thank you that in spite of that, you love us anyway. Thank you, Lord, that you do what you need to do in our lives to bring us back to you, to deconstruct us, to make us own our own wrong thinking and wrong acting and bring us back to you because you love us, Lord. You, you joy in giving salvation to your people to enjoy here on earth, but forever in your presence. Great is your salvation. Belongs to you, given to us. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.